Hello, and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Uh, so today I want to start with a bit of a confession. Um, like, we've been doing this for a while now, and I think I've already made five lectures on the Ethics of Literature subject, and it still feels like we're just at the beginning of the project. Um, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, honestly. Um, and this is not to suggest that I'm at all going to change my pace or that I want to stop doing this. Like, if that's the, the concern of, you know, me, like, leveling with you, like, don't worry about it. That's not what I'm saying here. Um, I'm feeling incredibly out of my depth is what it comes down to. See, when I originally was writing and researching about the ethics of literature, the reason why I included it as one of the topics that I wanted to talk about this semester, um... That was when I was an undergrad. Like, that was years ago at this point. Um, I wrote my first thesis on the topic, like, the moral fiction writer, back in 2008, um, which, at time of speaking, was literally, like, 15 years ago. Um, and, on the one hand, not a whole lot has changed. Like, me talking about 20th century art criticism slash ethics slash whatever it is that I'm doing here... I'm still using the same resources, I'm still using the same uh, talking points in many cases, um, but, you know, I was an undergrad 15 years ago. I was not nearly as sophisticated in my research methods, I was not terribly robust in examining the, the works that were being looked at um, by these various writers, and as I've been going through this process for the second time, um, like, my office has gradually just transformed into just piles of books everywhere, um, and me just sort of, like, collecting notes and trying to organize my thoughts before presenting these lectures. Um, doing it every week has, has proven challenging. Like, I, I do in fact have the time at this point in the semester, give it time, that may change. Um, but what I find so striking is that, like, especially in the preparation of the supplementary materials and talking about the various books that they're talking about, more often than not, I'm drawing a blank. Um, like, this has been awesome in so far as it's given me an opportunity to sort of reinvestigate Mallarmé and figure out why the heck literally everyone is talking about him, because you'll notice that even Cassette um, devotes quite a bit of time to talking about Mallarmé, and you better believe it's going to come up again when we talk about Sartre and when we talk about... Um, Derrida and most of the other French writers were examining. Um, but literally yesterday I was looking through Jacques Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist to sort of figure out what I was going to recommend as my supplementary readings there. Uh, like what Maritain seems to be deliberately kind of incorporating into his thought. Um, and in doing so I kind of suddenly realized that this was plugging into another one of my research topics, namely Maritain, as I knew, but kind of hadn't realized according to his artistic theory, theorizing, um, is one of the famous Christian existentialists, sort of standing in opposition to Sartre at roughly the same time period. Um, and most of the writers that he is referring to, like André Gide um, and whatever the other guy's name, it's suddenly eluding me at the moment. Um, again, overwhelmed. I'm so sorry. Uh, both of them, I think it's Moriac is the guy he's referring to. Yeah, Moriac. Um, both of them are also Christian existentialists, like super Catholic and super existentialist and very much combining their two philosophies, which means I want to read them. Like, I want to read Geed's The Immoralists, and I want to read Moriac's Viper's Knot, and, you know, all of a sudden I have more books being shipped to my house. Like, this is 
exciting and cool and constant and at the same time overwhelming because I really can't read all this shit as quickly as I'm trying to like digest it. Um, for today's lecture as well, like as much as this is ostensibly about Gasset's discussion of the dehumanization of art, um, really the reason why I wanted to incorporate this is one, like for some reason we jumped from Tolstoy in the late 19th century to like Sartre and Maritain in the, the 1950s without virtually even touching on anyone in the 1920s or 30s or 40s, which were in fact pretty pivotal moments in the history of art, just no one was doing the sort of systematic exploration that I was looking for, or alternatively, again, my research is just woefully inadequate here. Um, I did a little bit of research trying to fill out this period, like in addition to finding Gasset's essay, I also tracked down Trotsky's uh, work on what is literature, uh, like that Trotsky, the Trotsky who is at least partially responsible for, you know, shaping the Russian-Soviet world in the wake of the Russian Revolution. Um, and I read something like 50 pages of his treatise before discarding it because basically it was so specific um, to the post-revolution Russian world that, like, it's conclusions and stuff couldn't possibly apply um, to the sort of broader scale examination that we were doing here. Um, like, I've done that research, but I've done it insufficiently. Like, I was in a rush because, you know, I only had a few weeks to turn over between the old semester and our Bradbury discussion and the new semester and our ethics of literature discussion. Um, and I only had so much time to kind of prepare all the works and get together what our reading list was going to be, much less prepare what that supplementary reading list was going to be, much less actually do the reading on the supplementary list, which has left me feeling really bummed, honestly. Um, I want to do more. Um, and again, like I said, this isn't going to change what we're doing. But I do want it to change the way that I approach this topic and the way that you approach this topic. For the last couple of weeks, I feel like I've been overly abstract, that I've been sort of reaching for the ideas that I've been communicating. Um, I think I did pretty well last in our last discussion about Tolstoy's What is Art to kind of shape and specify what exactly I was going for. Like, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about the four kind of main talking points that we developed at the end of that discussion. Um, namely, that we're going to talk about pornography and sexual content as being potentially dangerous or having a potentially unpredictable reaction. Um, that whole elitism versus populism spectrum, the idea that a work of art can be inaccessible for the purposes of communicating some complicated thought and thus potentially lose readers and therefore be a little bit classist. Uh, but also a work of art can be deliberately pandering, in which case it's sort of denigrating its own theory or its own message in order to make it more palatable to more people, both of which are arguably unethical choices to a certain degree. Uh, likewise, we have the realism versus stylism spectrum, which we have only just scratched the surface of, because it wasn't really something that Tolstoy was terribly talkative about, but it's something that's going to get more and more important as we go along, and you'll see Gasset touching on something similar here, um, as well as a pretty blanket condemnation of Nietzsche's very elitist attitude towards, like, deliberately uh, excluding um, the lower classes from our discussion of art. Um, I'm, I'm proud of having come up with those ideas, uh, like I said, and I do want to, you know, 
I did want to recapitulate them uh, because we are going to be touching on them more in the, in the future. Um, but I also recognized that that was probably buried. Like, in talking around this stuff for literally two hours, practically, in our last discussion, it's entirely likely that we lost the forest for the trees. Um, and on the one hand, that's not my goal here. Like, I said at the outset, and I warned everyone, hey, you know, this is going to be a much higher level of discussion than is usually the case in my lecture series. Um, they are very much typically intended for the neophyte, for the beginner. Um, they are 101 and 201 level classes. Um, you want to listen to me talk about mythology, you need to know nothing going into that discussion except possibly do the reading that I request. Um, if you want to learn philosophy from me, if you want to take my intro course or my philosophy of love and friendship course, or one day if I ever manage to get it, the ethics course, in all of those cases, you'll be able to pick it up and have no prior uh, preparation going in. And for that matter, even when we read Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov or the various works of Bradbury, again, we just talked about them right out of the gate. You did not need any preparation going in. Um, but this series is very different. Like, it's been different, I'm sure, on your end, like, trying to, you know, parse everything that I'm talking about because I'm, you know, not terribly organized in the way that I'm thinking about this, and it is still very off the cuff. Like, I don't work on a script on this stuff. I have a note card that I prepare usually minutes before I actually prepare the actual lecture, and that's it. Um, although I do a good bit of thinking about it beforehand. The good news, then, is that you are getting this in its most unfiltered form. Like, if you are, in fact, a historian from the distant future studying the work of Professor Kozlowski because somehow I've managed to distinguish myself in such a way, then I assume this is great for you, because you are getting to see, like, the unfiltered psychology of how I am making these connections. But if you were trying to, like, just understand what the main talking points are in the ethics of art, I imagine this has been, honestly, pretty disappointing. Um, we have not been talking about the same talking points that show up on the internet every time a new Marvel movie comes out. Um, we are not talking about the same talking points that come up anytime that some PTA meeting, like, declares war on a school board over trying to ban some book that, you know, their kids were reading. We are getting there. Um, with every passing, you know, conversation, we are sort of narrowing our focus, and I'm trying to keep this sort of attached to the contemporary problems and the way that they are phrased. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm spending a lot of time doing some pretty abstract reasoning here, talking about works of literature as though they are playing cards rather than, you know, actual deep, meaningful bodies of, of work in their own right. Um, and I imagine that that's pretty impossible for a lot of people. Um, and kudos to you for making it this far. Like, this, my hat's off to anyone who is following the, the mad rantings of, of Professor Kozlowski as he wanders the labyrinth of his mind when it comes to all of the detritus that is built up over 15 years of kind of informally thinking about this without ever setting pen to paper. Um, I imagine it's difficult, and I want it to be less difficult. Um, so, on the one hand, today was kind of always intended to be a breathing day, um, like, I wanted to talk about Gassett's essay, but I didn't have, you know, a whole heck of a lot of research to show for it besides what Gassett had said. Um, so, you know, we have just the one essay instead of, like, a hundred pages to sort of parse and wade through. Um, but the other side of this is this, is that this is kind of intended to be a lecture that is doing the broad strokes 
bird's eye view of what 20th century literature is doing. Um, and once again, there's good and bad about this. The good is, hey, we get to take a break. Um, all of a sudden, we're going to be talking about very concrete examples instead of very abstract examples. We're going to be doing more historical examination of the history of art rather than abstract theorizing about what possibly Tolstoy meant by this offhand comment somewhere on page 425 or whatever. Um, the bad news, though, is that I am woefully, like, inadequately prepared for this. Um... On the one hand, this is stuff that you've probably encountered before, if you know a lot of my lectures at this point. Like, this is a lot of the same material that I cover in my 20th century art lecture, um, way back in General Humanities, which at this point is like two, three years ago, I think. Um, so feel free to go review that there, because I'm going to be covering a lot of the same ground. And on the one hand, I should stress, I was seriously thinking about doing this as a PowerPoint presentation, like doing this as a video lecture, um, the way that I often do with my video lectures. Like, I just prepare a PowerPoint presentation and then, like, record myself talking my, talking my way through it. Um, but on the one hand, this is abstract enough that I don't think we need to do that. Um, if you know the works, that's pretty much all we need to talk about. Like, I'm not going to be pointing out specific details in various works by various Dadaists in this particular lecture. That's not my goal. My goal is to talk about the Dada philosophy here. In part because that's what Gasset is talking about, but also in part because we need to understand what these art movements were trying to do in the greater context of what is happening in the early part of the 20th century in order to properly talk about how that's going to A, change as the 20th century proceeds, but also B, how that's going to plug into the various other thinkers and writers that we're talking about in the future. Um, we need to get a background on what people are doing and what, pe what has changed going from the 19th into the 20th century art world in order to appreciate what these various critics and ethicists are ultimately, you know, upset about in some cases. Um, Gasset is unusual among the readings that I've chosen because he is very deliberately not normative here. Um, his essay kind of does have a normative value. It is, at the end of the day, ethical, and if only because he is taking a non-judgmental stance on something that virtually everybody else is taking a judgmental stance on. Um, his neutrality is itself a statement of purpose, is itself an ethical statement. And if that sounds ridiculously convoluted or contradictory, yeah, that's fair. Um, the point here is, where everyone else is crying foul, where everyone else is saying the, that art has lost its way, Gasset is courageous enough to stand up and say, no, let's actually listen to what they have to say. Let's actually think about the message that they are giving us, which is tantamount to praise. It's tantamount to giving them the floor. Um, it's tantamount to saying, you know, maybe we should not jump to the conclusion that this is unethical when in fact, you know, maybe there is some ethical conclusion that is being communicated here. Um, that's still ethical criticism. Um, the we should maybe listen to them remains an ethical perspective, as we'll see with Gasset this week, and as we're going to see with Maritain, his particularly non-judgmental non art for art's sake approach next week. Um, so that's what I want to talk about here. I want to talk about Gasset, I want to talk about his non-judgmental stance, but I also want to talk about what the art movements themselves are saying. And in many cases, again, I wish there was a manifesto out there. And there might be, in some cases. Like, I'm 
next to positive that the Dadaists wrote a manifesto at some point. I just don't know what it is, and I haven't found it, and my research is woefully inadequate, and here we are. Um, this week, in order to prepare for this discussion, this lecture, I have been, you know, looking over a lot of those artworks, sure, but honestly, the large, the lion's share of the time that I spent doing research for this discussion, rather than, you know, all of my usual class preparation, or just, you know, playing video games at the end of the day to keep myself from losing my mind, or in that case, playing more and more Assassin's Creed Rogue, because... I'm losing my mind over that game at this point. Um, the main thing that I was doing was actually reading a book called Thinks uh, by Joel Whitney, subtitled How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers, because as you will find at the end of this lecture, this is going to turn into a propaganda discussion. Um, because that's very much where my head is at, and that's very much an ethical dimension of this literature and artistic world that I do in fact really want to talk about. And am once again woefully unprepared for. Um, it is something extremely important to me personally, for reasons that hopefully we'll be able to get into, because again, I'm trying to like tone down the super abstract philosophical approach here and trying to make this more concrete and more personal. Um, it's just fascinating to me, and I want to talk about it, which is at least part of what we're going to be doing today. Um, and I should stress, I got like two and a half chapters in. Like, this past week has not afforded a whole heck of a lot of time for casual research slash scholarly pursuits. Um, hence my apology. Hence why I started off this discussion with, like, what is effectively a 20-minute you know, mea culpa for not being a better scholar at this point. Um, I am, I am feeling that pressure is what it comes down to. Like, as much as I've had really stressful years in the past, as much as I've had really stressful semesters, um, and this is not one of those, like, I'm not just killing myself day after day trying to get my classes put together the way that I was last semester, for example. What I've found is unique about the particular brand of stress I'm dealing with this semester is that it is whiplash. Like, I'm doing too much over the past month in addition to producing four of these lectures. I have also written a short story and been working on my novel and been presenting all these classes and doing various readings from various people connected to our writing, like Mallarmé, like, you know, Joel Whitney, like whatever else I can pick up, like Trotsky. Um, and it's difficult. Like, there have literally been times where I'll be, you know, sitting in, cl in my classroom, waiting for class to start, and in the ten minutes before my class starts, I will have finished doing the reading I need to do for that session and instead switch to, you know, Mallarmé or Whitney or Trotsky or whatever and be reading something radically different in the minutes leading up to me presenting a lecture on Plato or whatever. Um, and my brain is not necessarily reacting that well to being able to flip a switch and go from thinking about 20th century art movements to now we have to talk about Socrates and his legacy for an hour. Um, it's interesting. Um, 
So again, my apologies for not having prepared this all better. Please do not treat me as the foremost expert on this subject. Um, we are going to dive deeper into other writers for sure, like once we get into Maritan next week or Sartre in the weeks after that. You can bet that we will be going back to something closer to the hardcore theorizing that we had with Tolstoy, um, though I hopefully will be able to make it more concrete, more organized, more toned down. Um, but yeah, bear with me. I'm figuring this out too. Um, this is a new format for me, both in the longer lectures, the higher level subject discussion, and just balancing all of the various things that I'm trying to study and read at this point. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at Guess Ed. Um, and again, there's going to be a certain amount of fluency with 19th and 20th century art movements very necessary um, to just getting through Guess Ed here. You'll notice that kind of the main point that he brings up and is sort of discussing and turning over is this contrast between the 19th century art movements on the one hand and the 20th century art movements on the other. Um, and he notes, like he starts with a discussion of how romanticism is kind of like this famously popular art movement that even in its early days, like when Goethe is writing The Sorrows of Young Werther or, you know, Goethe's Faust Part One. Um, it was wildly popular. People liked this, and it was adopted from the ground up. Um, like the Academy Francaise, that bastion of, you know, like painting and, and sort of bestowing honors on the greatest artists and artworks of the time, was resistant to the Romantic movement in a way that most of the other people had not been. Um, there was that same elitist versus populist spectrum that we talked about with, you know, the, the Tolstoy discussion. Um, but in the 18th century, the populist movement was first neoclassicism and then romanticism. But the elitist movement was embracing the Rococo and the neoclassical against romanticism for quite a long time. Um, but as I've talked about before, and as is important to understand here, there is a sort of gradual drift. So after Romanticism was in fact recognized as being this great, important, all-encompassing art movement, gradually it became entrenched and enshrined as the art movement of the day, which then ended up resisting the, the sort of intrusion of artists like the Realists later on in the 19th century. Um, and then again with the Impressionists at the very end of the 19th century, much as you see Tolstoy pushing back against them. Um, but this is also a little misleading. Like, as much as Gasset is saying, you know, yeah, there was a popular art form that was immediately popular right out of the gate, and that is, to some degree, true with the Romantics. Like, everybody was excited about the Romantics when they originally hit the scene, with the exception of the old guard protecting their, their Rococo and their neoclassicism. Um, it was more complicated than that. Like, in my study of Dostoevsky, for example, uh, by the time that Dostoevsky had kind of first appeared onto the Russian writing scene with the writing of Poor Folk, um, this was early on in realism's development. Like, this is 1850s, I want to say, maybe 1860s. I think it's 1850s. Um, by this time, you know, the re realism movement was still kind of fighting with Romanticism over its dominance, but the Russians were like, oh my gosh, this guy is amazing. We've need a, needed a Russian realist for ages now. Um, and he was immediately adopted and recognized as being like this harbinger of the new movement, this movement that they had seen in France and celebrated, but which hadn't yet made it over to Russia because Russia was always behind the times as they understood it. 
Um, now that itself is kind of complicated because Dostoevsky was like railroaded out of the community shortly afterward when he started writing Gogol-esque surreal nonsense like The Nose, um, and then, you know, got arrested, so oops. Uh, but nonetheless, what it means is there was, on the one hand, a kind of elitist interest in the avant-garde, in these new movements that were developing, at the same time as there was this sort of pushback by the old guard saying that, no, Romanticism is the movement that we want to protect, Romanticism is the movement that represents art in this day. Um, and you can see this again when Tolstoy is pushing back against Impressionism. Like, Tolstoy characterizes the love of Impressionism as being an elitist sort of celebration of an art movement that the common person just does not even understand. And this is what Gasset is talking about in the 20th century. This dynamic where there is an elite core of art appreciators, art critics, who are in fact celebrating this new art form, this new approach to art, whether it's Impressionism or Post-Impressionism or Fauvism or Cubism um, or indeed Dada, which is kind of just getting super powerful at the time that Gasset is writing here in 1925. Um, as much as there are, in fact, some elite art critics celebrating this new movement, there is controversy on all sides. It is not so simple as that. What Gasset characterizes as a democratic versus an elitist instinct, that populist-elitist dynamic slash spectrum that we were talking about earlier in Tolstoy, um, it's not quite so cut and dry as that. Um, some people are embracing Dada as the, the brazen, exciting new art movement because they are art critics and because they see what this means and they're anticipating what this means for the future. And some people are pushing it back against it because they are protecting the old guard of the Cubists, the Impressionists, etc. It's complicated. But at the end of the day, as much as this historical analysis of art movements is you know, possibly flawed in its simplicity, it is significant for us to notice it as this historical development, as, you know, we need to recognize that this is what's happening throughout this time period, more so than before, too. Um, like, now that we live in a global society here in the 19th and 20th centuries, these art movements have a lot more traction than they did in the past. Um, before Romanticism, art movements moved slowly. Now they seem to be picking up speed, dramatically picking up speed. Uh, like, before 1950, we've got something like four new 20th century art movements, if not five or six, depending on, you know, how you want to recognize the various sub-movements or, or sub-categories of these movements, um, in a way that just wasn't possible in the 18th or 17th century, because there was no global community, and while we did have the printing press, country, countries and distance were still kind of major barriers uh, for getting an idea from place to place. It's why the Renaissance took 200 years to kind of take um, in, say, England or the far-flung provinces of Europe, where, you know, in Italy they had already been going strong since the beginning of the 15th century. Um, this is Trixie. And this is part of what's changing in the world as mass media is becoming more and more accessible. Like... Now that everyone can, in fact, listen to the news and everyone can see firsthand the results of the Académie Française or because everyone is now paying attention to what the Académie Française is doing, that means that these art movements have a chance to sort of proliferate quickly and get public attention quickly. 
But at the same time, because these art movements are so controversial, because, as Gasset is emphasizing here, they are very unlike the movements of the 19th century, in addition to having this impetus of, you know, like the old overcoming or being overcome by the new and then becoming the old in order to be overcome by the new and so on and so forth, we also get this dynamic where the popular antagonism is actually feeding their popularity to some degree. Um, like, this is probably something that I don't need to talk about extensively because we see it in practice pretty readily in, you know, internet discourse about anything. Um, when, in fact, something becomes super popular, it becomes easy for people with a sort of elitist mindset to gatekeep and hate those things. And when something becomes popularly, like, ridiculed or hated, certain people are going to leap to their defense um, more readily than they might have otherwise. So, like, take the kind of obvious in our contemporary world contrast between the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Extended Universe. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has gotten tons of popularity. People have just jumped on board that train. You know, Mar the, the uh, Endgame was, like, the most widely watched popular movie ever for a long period of time there, the highest grossing film in history for a while. Um... Spider-Man Far From Home got, or no, no, Spider-Man No Way Home, I get all of the home Spider-Man confused, They're, those names need to be fixed, um, was also wildly popular and wildly celebrated, um, and you'll notice that there is definitely a subsection of people on the internet, in fact, quite a few, possibly even the majority at this point, who are like happy about Marvel's success, but also poo-pooing this in some way. Like, they're overrated, is what the internet seems to, to sort of land on more often than not. Um, like, find any person talking about the Marvel movies today, and you have a better than even chance, I would say, that they will say, you know, this is this is good and it's fun, but it's also overrated and overhyped and, you know, maybe we need a change from this. Like, every time that some new Marvel movie comes out, you inevitably get the discussion of, is Marvel fatigue finally setting in? Um, especially when their numbers aren't necessarily great. Like when Thor Love and Thunder came out last year, everyone was like, is this it for the Marvel franchise? And of course it's not. Um, but that's the attitude that a lot of people have. Here is this popular thing. I want to distinguish myself, namely get more clicks or, you know, show that I am more intelligent than the average person. Um, and I will take some cheap shots at this particular movie or this particular franchise in order to rally this support around me to sort of distinguish myself, raise myself up above them, and show that I am smarter than the average Marvel fan. Um, by contrast, look at the way that people react to the DC universe. Um, the DC universe very much got off on the wrong foot. Um, between Man of Steel and then Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Like, everyone hated those movies in some respect. Um, they were widely rejected by the popular art criticism community. Critics came down hard on them. People didn't go see these movies. And as a consequence, a lot of people kind of stood up for them and got sort of ravenous or even rapidly defensive 
um, emphasizing, you know, actually, you didn't understand it. This is something, you know, so sophisticated. This this really is rooted in something meaningful. Like, yeah, it's actually a big deal that both of their mother's names are Martha. Like, there's a certain disingenuousness to this, and this is all definitely wrapped up with the political elements here, the fact that, like, hardcore right-wing alt-right people also got sort of mixed up in the, the discussion of, you know, defending the DC universe probably because it was vulnerable and hyper-masculine. Um, but that's neither here nor there. What I want to emphasize is that there is a natural human inclination to do this. Um, that there is this sort of us-versus-them mentality which turns a hated thing into a, like, secret underdog, while a much-beloved thing is the juggernaut that needs to be taken down. Um... Gasset isn't really interested in these ideas. I just bring them up because I want us to contextualize what Gasset has to say here. Because Gasset is, in some sense, trying to stay off of both of these discussions. Um, we see a dynamic here where there are artists producing art that is unlike anything that we have seen before. It is meeting with wide popular outcry and anger and being defended by certain subsections of the art criticism world, probably for similar reasons to what the DC fans tend to do when they are getting, like, rejected. Namely, here is actually something that we may in fact defend, or that I can see the point of, but now I actually have to stand it as a staunch defender, because there is such an overwhelming tide of opposition here. Um, there's definitely something on those lines happening but where the dc universe is at the end of the day kind of brain dead and not actually that sophisticated in its execution it is just commercial you know like production going very far awry the artists here are kind of caught in the middle they are you know basically being used as this playing piece between the populists on the one hand and the elitists on the other. Um, they are being shuffled around, sort of, against their will. And in most cases, they're just continuing to do their art. Like, they're still making enough money to survive. They don't really care about the popular outcry. Um, they're being fed it in the right places, and they're, in many ways, forming a community of their own that kind of doesn't give a crap about what the other the rest of the world thinks like the artists themselves are convinced enough in the rightness of their cause that they're going about doing their art um and we'll talk about like what the individual artists are thinking and doing in their own time but let's at least start by parsing it from gasset's perspective um for gasset this has to do with dehumanization the major contrast that he's setting up here between the 19th century art movements and the 20th century art movements is that the 19th century was all, start to finish, romanticism, realism, and probably impressionism as well, human-focused, human-centered. It was centered on the human experience, even if it transformed over time between the early 19th century and the late 19th century. Romanticism was all about emotionality. It was all about our passions, our experience. Um, on the one hand, it was increasingly subjective, as we see in The Sorrows of Young Werther, and Werther sort of like writing his own personal experience and sort of um, developing his own passionate story like against 
the objectivity insisted upon by Albert and others. Uh, but on the other hand, we should emphasize that even like the Romantic artists themselves were trying to communicate this sort of overwhelming feeling in them. You know, all of their art is evocative. It makes us feel. Whether it's the Jericho's Raft of the Medusa making us feel gross and, and sad and upset on behalf of these people who have suffered so much. Or, you know, like Goya's Revolution of the Third of May, which again sort of evokes this horror at human cruelty and this sympathy and compassion for its victims. Um, or if it's just something like a Turner with the huge storms bearing down on like unsuspecting people, you know, we feel that awesome power of nature. We feel that reverence for the natural world and how pathetic humans are in comparison. Um, by contrast, realism doesn't inspire necessarily those strong feelings of emotions, but it does center on human activity. Humans doing businessy things, humans in offices, humans working, humans at train stations, um, humans, you know, in their natural habitat in some sense. Where the romantic movement tended to emphasize human emotion and sort of spotlight human suffering especially, the realists have kind of turned away from human suffering, but sort of thrown into sharp relief just human activity. Let us take an interest and recognize as artistically valuable and meritorious just day-to-day -day activities that people do. And then, of course, the Impressionists tend to shine their light on nature and the abstract forces surrounding it, but do so by emphasizing the human perspective. This is what this Sunday in the, in the park in the afternoon looks like to us, pointillism though it may be. This is what these water lilies or this haystack looks like to us based on the way that the light plays with it, as Monet might suggest. That's gone here in 20th century art movements. Now, to some degree, we could make the argument that something like cubism is still doing something human-centered, um, insofar as, like, even though we are seeing these people or these characters or these figures in a radically new and sort of distorted light, that it is still, you know, recognizing the limits of human perception, recognizing that, like, we can only see one side of a person's face at a time. Um, but at the same time, it is alienating. It is deliberately alienating. It distances us from the subject of the painting. Um, we are not looking at the painting, we are looking at the craft used to create the painting in most cases. We're kind of forced to do that based on the way that it's presented to us by Picasso or whichever other Cubist artist we're looking at. Um, and I find a really interesting like discussion of this, a really interesting metaphor that Gasset uses to highlight this idea. Um, as he says on page 68 of the, the sort of article that you can find online, um, it is a perfectly simple matter of optics. In order to see an object, we have to adjust our eyes in a certain way. If our visual accommodation is inadequate, we do not see the object, or we see it imperfectly. Imagine we are looking at a garden through a window. Our eyes adjust themselves so that the, our glance penetrates the glass without lingering upon it, and seizes upon the flowers and foliage. As the goal of vision towards which we direct our glance is the garden, we do not see the pane of glass and our gaze passes through it. The clearer the glass, the less we see it. But later, by making an effort, we can ignore the garden, and by retracting our focus, let it rest on the window pane. Then the garden disappears from our eyes, and all we see of it are some confused masses of color which seem to adhere to the glass. Thus, to see the garden and to see the window pane are two incompatible operations. The one excludes the other, and they each require a different focus. What 
Gasset is suggesting here, and what I really want to drive home in sort of his discussion of the way that contemporary art is changing, is that we are moving from a kind of realism or human-focused art, as exemplified by the 19th century movements of Romanticism, Realism, and Impressionism, to a art-centered art, realized in the movements of something like Cubism, abstraction especially, as well as Dadaan surrealism to perhaps a lesser degree, though we'll talk about that. We are moving our focus. We are changing our focus from the thing beyond the glass, beyond the window, which the window in its transparency allows us to see, to the window itself, to the medium of art itself. Now, to some degree, all art movements do this. Like, I think Gasset is, is a little overzealous when he says that like all art movements prior to the 19th century did this and all of the art movements in the 19th century failed to do this and are therefore aberrant like that's not true romanticism was definitely drawing attention to its own sort of artistic abilities when you know it sort of made the brush strokes more broad and vague and, and deprioritized detail um just as the realists were almost certainly drawing attention to their craft in response to the advent of photography um, and the Impressionists, like, don't even get me started. Obviously, they are, you know, drawing a lot of attention to the business of craft itself. It's what makes them such a great bridge to these 20th century art movements that Gasset is... In, I hesitate to say celebrating, because he very much isn't doing that, but at least acknowledging and, and uh, interpreting. What he is saying here is that the intent of the artist, the interest of the artist, has shifted from what the art is depicting to the business of doing art itself. The subject of art has gone from human experience in its various forms to just the business of craft in its own way. Um, now, we could map this onto our various spectra that we talked about when we were talking about Tolstoy in our last lecture. It would be really easy to see this according to that elitist populist divide and understand that like, by presenting a work of art that specifically does not speak to you know general sensibilities we are doing something immoral and you know Tolstoy would probably almost certainly argue that in this case um even more relevantly we could definitely apply this to the realism stylism or genre trappings discussion that we also had talking about Tolstoy which Tolstoy didn't develop especially well but is definitely something that we're going to get more and more invested in as time goes on but on the other hand, I kind of want to set this apart, because this is something that a lot of our artists are going to be, or a lot of our writers are going to be talking about later, um, especially John Gardner. Like, so I'm just going to spoil John Gardner a bit. Like, Gardner divides the art world into primary and secondary art, where primary art is geared towards talking about stuff, like the human experience, suffering, drama, all that sort of thing. But secondary art is devoted to talking about art, questioning the assumptions we make when we come to a work of art or experimenting with the craft for craft's own sake. This seems a lot closer to what Gasset is talking about, and I think it's a lot clearer distinction than what Gasset is suggesting with his humanization or realism versus dehumanization or however we want to parse it here. So let's just set that up as another binary that we need to kind of discuss and another spectrum that we need to explore. Let's talk about this in terms of primary versus secondary art. According to Gasset, the 19th century art movements are predominantly primary art. 
they're interested in the human experience, they're speaking to the human experience or to human things, um, human understanding of things, human ideas, human abstractions, human feelings, whereas the 20th century art movements are predominantly secondary in nature. They are commenting on the nature of art itself more than they are commenting on the nature of human experience or suffering or drama or whatever. And, and this goes for all of the art forms as well as these particular art movements. Um, Gasset highlights that in the 19th century, most poetry is also still evocative. Um, we either have like the deep feeling sort of poetry of, of someone like um, the romantic poets of the, the British or French world, um, you know, someone like the, the Ideals of the King by Tennyson, designed to sort of not just speak about a human myth or human legend, but to speak about it evocatively to, you know, cause us to feel for these characters and their suffering. Um, versus here in the 20th century, you know, that's not the goal of poetry at all. And he highlights once again Mallarmé. I told you Mallarmé was going to come up again. Um, as being this sort of vanguard of the poetry without human subject matter. The, the poetry of Mallarmé frequently points to stuff that cannot possibly exist and is thus fascinating to contemplate for that very reason. Um, Mallarmé is doing secondary poetry, writing about poetry in some sense, highlighting the craft rather than the actual subject matter in some sense. And we're going to hear lots of people say the same thing about Mallarmé, so that's kind of why I was hedging about it um, when Tolstoy was giving Mallarmé some pretty serious shade. I'm still st not pleased with Baudelaire. Like, Asset tries to redeem Baudelaire here, too, and I'm just, like, not having it. But nonetheless, we'll give Mallarmé a pass and see what our other writers have to say about him before we start making any more judgments. Um, likewise, in music, you can see the same thing. Um, Wagner, Beethoven are incredibly evocative composers. Um, whether or not we agree with Tolstoy that Beethoven and Wagner have like flown off the deep end and are no longer communicating to common people and it's just noise, it, I find it much more likely that both Wagner and Beethoven are incredibly emotional, even if it is bombastic and, as Gasset puts it here, melodramatic. Melodrama is, to some degree, the perfect realization of that sort of human-centered art form. You know, as much as we may ridicule soap operas for being trashy and, and melodramatic, we should emphasize that they are human-focused above all. They are directly centered towards the human experience with no irony, with no craft in some cases, you know, to the point that, like, it becomes its own craft just to keep these characters floating from week to week. Um... Like, I don't want to say that all soap operas are trash, that's that's not nice, but nonetheless, it is a very different, very human-centered approach towards art, towards literature, towards character development. Um, and to some degree, you can say the same thing about the Marvel movies. Like, we might as well go ahead and take pot shots at everyone while we are here. Um, that's human-centered. Whereas, again, these art movements, especially abstraction, especially Dada, are removing the human component from it entirely. And just as, you know, Wagner and Beethoven are considered melodrama by Gasset here, so Debussy is his kind of perfect example of a purely, like, restrained, contemplative music as opposed to the bombast of the past generation. Um, now, to some degree, like, I, I don't know Debussy enough, again, woefully unprepared for this lecture, um, to be able to weigh in one way or the other. What springs to mind in my mind is Bach, like... 
Bach is the perfect example for me of the intellectual composer who's always playing math games rather than trying to evoke some particular emotional reaction. There are exceptions, like Toccata and Fugue, which really are like breaking the rules of Fugue in order to evoke the emotion. Um, but nonetheless, more often than not, you listen to a Bach piece and it is pure math. It is just repetition of certain themes, it is, you know, totally divorced from, from your, like, emotional reaction. That's what is being held up here. Um, and Gasset is, to some degree, anticipating what's going to happen in music over the next, like, 50 years. Like, we are going to get the likes of some sort of neo-romantics and the likes of, you know, Kurt Atterberg or something. Um, but we're all, and as well as, you know, all those movie composers, you know, everyone, like doing the soundtrack for Dr. Zhivago or John Williams doing Star Wars in the future, like, those are heavily evocative and very emotionally driven, but also kind of fall into a different category and once again fall on the populist side of our populist elitist distinction. Um, what Gasset is does seem to be anticipating is the likes of, you know, super modern, super avant-garde composers who, like, just play five radios, or all tuned to different stations and call it a, a, an art movement or who just give you like five minutes of silence while everybody just sits in the audience feeling more and more uncomfortable and makes like the various coughs sneezes or people shifting around in their chairs the matter of the the composition um we are seeing increasingly experimental attempts on that front as well more attention drawn to the business of music, the business of sound, questioning what makes music music, just as these visual artists are questioning what makes art art. And we're going to see this in literature as well. You'll notice that on the one hand, Gasset holds up a certain style of 20th century art movements, which seems more in line with the romantics. That is, they are interested in human things, but in this case, they are, like, hyper-interested in really small human things. Um, and he holds up Proust here, as well as Joyce, um, as being sort of like these particular scientists of the minutia of human existence, sort of deprioritizing the things that we usually think of as important in order to celebrate the things that we tend to think of as unimportant, which he considers to be sort of a subsection of this dehumanization of art. Um, we saw this before, like, when we were talking about Tolstoy, and I read that one, you know, the, the gallant shooter or the gallant marksman by Baudelaire, and I emphasize that on the one hand, this is really small and petty, and I can be okay with this, but on the other hand, it's also just mean, and I can't be okay with that. Um, the pettiness is what Gasset is kind of highlighting here. The fact that the human experiences that are otherwise unremarkable or so small as to sort of, like, evade our notice, the attention to detail that many of these contemporary artists seem to be focusing on, that's what Gasset is getting at here. That has artistic merit to some degree and can be celebrated in its own right, as Gasset seems to suggest here. There is room for that in the art world. It isn't immoral to spend an entire, I don't know, like 20 pages talking about somebody's toothbrush regimen. Um, there can be room for this. There can be a purpose for this. This too can be art even if it's drawing our attention to something that we usually don't pay attention to. Um, but as much as this is true, and as much as this is a component of that dehumanization of art, I think the real, true realization of what this is going to look like in literature probably isn't available to Gasset at this particular moment. 
Um, on the one hand, we should definitely be alert to that minutia of human experience thing, that sort of abstract, you know, focus on human day-to-day -day activity, which is, in fact, going to get more and more truck in the likes of, again, Raymond Carver. I continually, like, beat up that poor guy, and probably undeservedly. Um, or something like Joyce Carol Oates, or, or anything like that. Um, but it, we should also definitely be attentive to the fact that literature is going to be making some pretty dramatic changes after 1925. Um, that on the one hand, we are going to see the likes of Faulkner and Joyce and Virginia Woolf starting to experiment with more dynamic ways of doing art, doing literature, doing the communication of perspective. You know, Faulkner and Joyce adopting different voices or using nonsense words or, you know, hopping back and forth between one perspective and another, breaking the barriers of, of who is speaking at any given moment. Um, how Wolf will, like, allow her novel to be composed of four or five different voices and then either combine or, or distinguish from them as time goes on. All these are yet to happen for Gasset. And all of these are going to be drawing attention to the literary form in much the same way that the abstractionists are drawing attention to the visual art form. And since this is, at the end of the day, a you know discussion of literature, first and foremost, it definitely bears mentioning. That change, too, is coming down the pike. Um, the 20th century world of literature is going to increasingly see more and more authors drawing attention to the business of doing writing of how fiction is composed. Now, there are two words that we have been kind of deliberately avoiding at this point, that again, Gasset isn't terribly schooled in, but that we nowadays would see as being extremely relevant to that whole discussion of the dehumanization of art. First and foremost, we gotta say it, it's postmodernism. Like, Gasset is talking about postmodernism here. Um, and any time that I have this conversation in my class, like any time that I'm trying to distinguish, okay, so here is where modernism ends and here is where postmodernism begins, I end up giving pretty vague dates. Um, and these days when I try and teach like the, the four major historical periods of philosophy to my students, I usually break it up into, you know, modernism ends roughly around 1850 and postmodernism begins at roughly around 1850, if only because I feel like Nietzsche is more postmodern than modern and it's very much just a crapshoot here. But postmodernism as an art movement really is something that only develops later than that. Um, like, if Nietzsche is, in fact, our first great postmodern philosopher, along with possibly Kierkegaard and some of the other really late 19th century guys, we should definitely recognize that it, if, in fact, Gasset is correct and there is this sea change between the 19th century attitude towards art and the 20th century attitude towards art, the postmodern art, both in the visual arts and in literature, probably is a 20th century phenomenon in its own right. Or 20th and 21st, anyway. Um, but the hallmark of postmodernism is the same antagonism of objectivity, that same skepticism of capital T truth. If, in fact, the subject matter of art is not going to be humans and human experience, but instead is going to be just art sort of meditating on its own qualities, meditating on its own craftsmanship, that's postmodernism. That's postmodernism in a nutshell. Um, now, it can be executed to certain degrees, 
you know, we are talking about postmodernism and modernism as though they're a binary, that, like, Gasset is saying that, you know, here we have the likes of Paul Clay and Kandinsky who are doing something utterly unlike what was being done by, you know, uh, Turner or um, Monet, which, you know, we can debate and have. But what we should definitely emphasize here is that this is, it's not an all-or-nothing situation here. Just because these artists are, in fact, going whole hog one way or the other does not mean that you can't do a little postmodernism and a little modernism at the same time. More often than not, we're going to see art approaching this by degrees. Um, there will be metatextual elements in our otherwise traditional work of art more often than there is going to be just a work of art that is completely abandoning the modern perspective of, you know, incorporating human elements into the work. Um, and we'll talk about that more when we actually bump into those artworks as we go on. For now, suffice it to say that, you know, just because Deadpool draws attention to himself in his various movies does not mean that they are pure metatextual. Um, it happens frequently enough that it's hard to, you know, I mean, I won't say hard. It is really easy to just slip back into the normal narrative mode. But the narrative mode is there in Deadpool 1 and 2, as much as he is commenting on it as frequently as he is. Both are present, and they both function together. Whereas something that is purely metatextual would probably be a very, you know, artsy or very abstract kind of movie, you know, on the vein of something like a Terrence Malick or an Under the Skin or Titane or something like that. Um, whereas, you know, a purely modern, purely realistic movie would probably be something in the vein of, you know, whatever Spielberg is making these days that isn't about himself. Um, there's a spectrum here as well, is what it comes down to, and probably a spectrum that's worth adding to the existing spectra that we have already been talking about in the wake of Tolstoy. In addition to our elitism populism spectrum, we could definitely add the, you know, modern or human versus dehuman or, you know, postmodern axis, even if it does sort of align with the realism stylism axis a lot of the time. Let's at least suspend our judgment on this front. Like, we should at the very least be aware that this could be the case. Um, but since, again, it maps fairly closely to that realism stylization axis, we'll hold off for now and maybe call that instead the realism versus craftsmanship or realism versus self-awareness axis. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll come back to that discussion quite a bit more in the, the weeks to come, I'm sure, as this becomes more prevalent and more subject to discussion by the artists that we are confronting. Um, but that said, let's, let's actually talk about those art movements and what they are doing here and why they are doing it. Um, like, Gasset definitely gets at a lot of this by his recognition that, you know, there is this move towards the inhuman, towards the dehumanized... Um, as a subject of, of artistic discussion and artistic investigation. Um, but as much as this is true, and as much as this is a pretty accurate descriptor of what's going on for all of these art movements, each one of them also has kind of their own objectives and agenda, their own manifesto, again, even if I couldn't find it. Um, as much as Picasso is sort of distancing ourselves from, or distancing the audience from the subject with his various Cubist works, we should emphasize that Picasso is stressing this because of the limits of our own perception. 
you know, it isn't totally inhuman for Picasso. He is just recognizing that human limitation and creating an, a sort of artistic expression that either accommodates or draws attention to it. Um, just as the Impressionists kind of drew attention to the way that color works and the way that the eyes work and the way that, you know, our own perception works, Picasso is sort of doing the same thing here. This is essentially something human, but it is about perspective. It is about perception, not the actual thing that is being perceived. Now, abstraction, however, is kind of on its face the perfect example of what Gasset is talking about. Whether you're looking at Kandinsky and his just random shapes, or Paul Clay and his use of line and color to emphasize, you know, balance or time or development of a theme, um, at the end of the day, they are using the artistic tools, lines, colors, shapes, etc., in order to talk about the artistic tools, lines, colors, shapes, etc. Um, they are, in, a, in essence, doing the purely like self-commentative, the purely postmodern task of drawing attention to the craft and letting the craft speak on its own merits without any attachment to reality in some sense. Now, this isn't necessarily 100% true. Like, I'm actually sort of reminded of that, that, that bit in Parks and Rec, uh, Parks and Recreation, the sitcom, where, like, Aziz Ansari's character falls in love with an abstract painting and has, like, this profound emotional response springing from the various ways that the shapes and colors interact. And, you know, it's a really funny bit in the show and also really surprisingly insightful. Uh, like, Parks and Rec has its moments, but it is terribly consistent all the time. Um, but I've always kind of been drawn to that particular discussion because on the one hand, I think that they're absolutely right and that there are these sort of moments where, you know, looking at a work that is utterly abstract and that usually doesn't appeal to that popular consciousness and for the exact reasons that Gasset is pointing out here, this idea that, you know, people are looking for the human or looking for something to identify and relate to in painting. And now that these art movements are coming about that don't express that, that don't have anything for us to connect to, we bounce off of it or consider it immoral or reject it outright. Um, whereas occasionally you hear these stories of people who do just weirdly connect to the shapes, um, which, you know, in Parks and Recreation turns into the kind of farce of Aziz Ansari standing over the artist's shoulder and saying, no, those are the wrong shapes, do it better. Like, there's something absurd about that. But at the same time, I think what Gasset is getting at here, and what most abstractionists would tend to point out, is that it's not supposed to necessarily elicit an emotional response. Um, if anything, we should be setting up another axis here, and that axis is the emotional versus the intellectual. Um, these are works that appeal not to the emotional reaction the way that Beethoven did, or Wagner did, or Turner did, but instead are appealing to a purely intellectual interaction you are expected to be knowledgeable about the way that art works in order to appreciate how Kandinsky balances shapes and colors on one side of the canvas against the other, or how, you know, Paul Clay will allow the image developing over the course of the canvas to, you know, symbolize or, or represent the, pas the passage of time or the representation of movement. Um, we are deconstructing art here, which is that second key word that I wanted to get at. You know, we are, at the end of the day, sort of laying bare the me methodology, the mechanism by which these art is, 
these artworks are produced in order to examine the art more closely, to examine our relationship to that art more closely. Um, and that is something that abstraction kind of excels at. But again, abstraction is on the one hand, one of the most prevalent art movements even today, like as much as Dada kind of fizzled out really quickly and as much as we don't see many cubists or surrealists anymore, you will find abstract artists all over the friggin' place. Um, and on the one hand, I suspect that we would be correct in saying that we should suspend our moral judgment because, you know, again, there could be reason for, for this kind of emphasis. But on the other hand, I suspect that this is more complicated than that. And there may actually be immoral reasons underlying these artworks, whether it is because, you know, it is something that is artificially popular for an elite at taste and attitude, which puts us in Tolstoy territory again, um, or alternatively because this has artificially been sustained for reasons that we'll be talking about shortly. Um, in either case, we should definitely acknowledge that Gasset has a point here, that there is room for abstraction and moral abstraction at that. You know, I can't necessarily get behind Kandinsky 100% of the time, and I've never really seen the point of most of the Jackson Pollock works, um, except insofar as they do sometimes elicit an emotional reaction, again, because lines, I guess, same as Aziz Ansari. Um, but I am totally a fan of Paul Clay. Like, the intellectual acts, or the intellectual requirements of appreciating Clay are something that I can do pretty readily. Um, now that I know what to look for, now that I've kind of been schooled or trained, even if this does mean that my attitude has been perverted, as Tolstoy would suggest. Um, but I also want to talk about the other two here. Um, as much as Dada is coming onto the scene in as... Gasset is writing this essay, and I'm not entirely sure how much Gasset has Dada in mind when he is talking about the dehumanization of art. It is really important for us to understand Dada as this kind of political slash apolitical art movement at this particular moment in time. See, against these more abstract art movements, our abstraction or cubism or dada or surrealism, the other major art movement that is kind of a big deal at this particular moment in time but isn't getting a whole heck of a lot of press, especially from Gassette, is social realism, um, which is the you know, old movement from the end of the 19th century kind of just writ large and become even more popular um, here in the 20th century. But it is also strongly associated with social activism, which here in the beginning of the 20th century means communism. Um, and again, when I was trying to research for, you know, this particular lecture, as well as the whole lecture series in general, I wanted to talk about communism. I wanted to talk about Marxism, and I wanted to talk about these specifically communist view of art. Um, and again, I'm just woefully inadequate to this task. Like, I imagine if I studied some more Adorno or something, I would come up with a better understanding of the 20th century Marxist attitude toward art, and probably even find the kind of broad strokes, ethical treatment of literature that I have been searching for and frequently not coming up with. So if, in fact, you're a huge Marxist fan and you happen to know, like, some famous Marxist's definitive text on the ethics of art and literature in the early half of the 20th century, please, please draw my attention to it. Like, I, I am not a Marxist. I was not schooled as a Marxist as much as I have, in fact, read my fair share of Marx and are fairly sympathetic to the socialist and communist agenda. 
yeah, I've never really gone out of my way to, you know, master my Marxists, so to speak. Um, but what I do know, and what I do want to stress here, and what I was hoping Trotsky would give me, was the Marxist take on art, which is that it's supposed to serve social progress. Like, this is an, an absolute for the Marxists. Um, and, you know, the most extreme Marxists, as I've encountered them, have even gone so far as to say that art is unnecessary, superficial, destructive even. It is a distraction from the goals that the state needs to participate in, the goals of liberating the workers. It is yet another elitist capitalist nonsense sort of uh, intentionally fortifying their position as the masters of the world and uh, keeping the proletariat under their thumb. Um, art is a tool of oppression, in short for many of the communists. Like in the 19th century when communism was still in its nascency, you'll find, like, especially treatises from Dostoevsky, which is how I know this stuff, um, talking about how, you know, there are all of these people who's like, stop writing books and instead make more bootlaces because that is a practical need that will help the proletariat and help, you know, social movement rather than frivolous nonsense that doesn't do anything but fortify an already bourgeois or capitalist culture. Um, on the extreme end, that's what they're calling for. Get rid of art. But more of the, the more sophisticated Marxists who do appreciate that art has a kind of galvanizing effect and it can be used for social change recognize that that's the only good purpose to which it can be turned. Um, so at this particular moment in time, as much as Gasset is talking about the art movements that are developing, especially in the European West, you know, most of the art artists that he is referring to are French or German or, or English or Spanish, you'll note that in Russia and in the Eastern European world, the primary mode of doing art is this social realism. A deliberate and direct attention to the plight of the underclass, the plight of the oppressed, with the sort of unstated or perhaps very clearly stated objective of encouraging them to rise up and to liberate themselves, to throw off the chains of their capitalist oppressors, and instead to embrace the new and burgeoning communist movements that are sweeping the, the world, effectively. Um, so that's what I wanted to read Trotsky and incorporate him into this class to talk about. Um, the best I could come up with was, we're going to talk about it during the Gasset essay, because that's kind of as close as we're likely to get. But what I want to stress here is that this goes absolutely hand in glove with the discussion of propaganda. Um, at this particular moment in time, in 1925, we have just largely left behind World War One, And in World War One, a lot of art was contracted or used to promote, whether deliberately or unintentionally or just literally like stolen by the government for their own purposes, to promote the war, to promote nationalism. Art became a tool in the hands of the politicians. Um, it became pretty normal, pretty acceptable for a nation to celebrate its own artistic accomplishments, its own cultural achievements, by having some sort of pro-war or pro-nationalist 
museum gala or something to celebrate, you know, this particular artist from our particular nation, which separates us from the Germans or from the British or from the Russians or whoever. We are going to have a distinctly French art exhibition or a distinctly German art exhibition because we are the supreme culture and we need to rally around our troops, our politicians, our nation, and fulfill our destiny as the rulers of Europe in some of these cases. This was common. And as much as we look back at this now and sort of like poo-poo this and think, you know, how were people so stupid or so gullible, I mean, on some level, yes. Like, on some level, there was a kind of broad-scale acceptance of this kind of behavior, a, you know, post-Nietzschean, post-19th century lingering love of nation and patriotism that, that led people to just blithely accept and even encourage this kind of behavior. Um, but on the other hand, we should stress that, you know, the real, the real thing that I'm trying to emphasize here, I suspect I'm getting lost in the weeds again, what I'm really trying to emphasize here is that a lot of artists were really mad about this in the early 20th century. On the one hand, you will have art, artists that are complicit with these national aims. You know, a lot of those social realists are, in fact, communists trying to encourage communism, trying to encourage people to embrace communism, trying to encourage the spread of communism. But on the other hand, you have the likes of, you know, Rembrandt being shown in various Dutch galleries as a sort of pro-Dutch, like, hooray for the Netherlands, we should team up with the Germans and absolutely wreck the French kind of sentiment. And... Rembrandt wasn't there to approve it, just as, you know, Mozart wouldn't have been there to approve it if the government put on an all-German composer, you know, exhibition, or, like, Night of the Symphony, in order to gain support for, you know, the war effort. Um, they weren't there. They couldn't say one way or another. These were supposedly national heroes that the government felt perfectly fine in exploiting and using to their own purposes, and artists were pissed about this. And justly so in some cases. While this is obviously, you know, fairly benign when it comes to taking established masters of former generations, it is a whole other thing entirely when the government, like, steals your work of art, sticks it on a propaganda poster, and says, you know, support the cause, because otherwise we cannot fund or support great artists like this one. That was not what they made that painting for. Um, and the Dada movement especially is very much intended as a reaction against this. Dada's stated goal is to be an art movement that cannot be exploited for political purposes. And Dada is explicitly political in that sense. Like, it is kind of, you know, counterintuitive on this front. But yes, it cannot be exploited because it is deliberately offensive or unreadable or just incredibly abstract or even just inflammatorily inappropriate. Um, whether it's something like Hannah Hoke, you know, pasting news pictures and articles together or juxtaposing the eyes of various, like, famous politicians with gears as though they are all just mechanisms of the state. Um, this is intended to be, on the one hand, kind of offensive and inflammatory, and on the other hand, to be deliberately unusable by those same politicians to be an affront to their attitude and their mechanistic way of governing and controlling popular perspective or popular opinions. 
Um, and it is noteworthy that the Dada movement is probably at its strongest in France and Germany, even as the rise of the Third Reich and Hitler and the Nazis are starting to come to power. Increasingly, that propaganda is going to be brought out again, is going to be p more powerful and more s widely disseminated than ever before. Propaganda as a tool of political forces and you know nationalistic regimes, especially in the rise of these like super nationalistic engines in America and the and Germany and elsewhere, is gonna hit its peak after Dada fired the warning shot saying we don't want this to happen. Um, and as a consequence, like what I want to emphasize here is that as much as Gasset is saying, you know, this is an artistic decision, this is about the artistic craft and not the actual people, on the other hand, these art movements were very much kind of dedicated and intended to be anti-human because they didn't want to be pro-political. They didn't want to be pro-national. They didn't want to cause another war. Um, this was very much the stated aim of a lot of these artists, both on the abstraction side and on the Dada side especially. And Gasset, as much as he does pick up on certain elements of this, kind of doesn't touch on that other dimension here. The fact that by saying nothing, or by saying something deliberately inflammatory, or by saying something deliberately offensive, these artists were in fact trying to express something that couldn't be co-opted. Something that couldn't be turned into some kind of, you know, mouthpiece or megaphone of the state. This was, in an essence, protest art. And in that sense, it is human. It never stopped being human. It never stopped being political. It never stopped being, you know, about people and people's problems. It never stopped being about the big truths of human experience. It's just that those big truths of human experience, when expressed straight, could be co-opted and could be, you know, like, perverted to the purposes that they did not want their art to serve. Art was, for many of these writers, or many of these artists, deliberately apolitical. Stringently apolitical. Violently apolitical. And if it became political, then that was a failure on the part of the artist. When Marcel Duchamp suggests that his urinal should be used as a submission to the Académie Française for one of the great artworks of the year, he is basically saying that the Académie Française is a tool of the state, that their ability to decide what is or is not art is in fact a functionary, a, a sort of, like offshoot of the power structures that exist, controlling all these people's lives and essentially propagandizing them into an allegiance to their national agenda. He didn't want that. He wanted people to think for themselves. And he was so disgusted and so offended by this particular abuse of power in the art world where he lived and hung his hat that he decided to sh practically shit on it. Um... And we will see more of that as time goes on. You know, Gasset emphasizes at the end of his essay that many of these art movements are deliberately reacting against or reacting to the art movements of the past. You know, now Baudelaire celebrates the black Venus because the white Venus had already existed and sort of been, you know, celebrated too much already. The same is true here. We are going to take great statues, you know, of the Virgin Mary and douse them in urine or in literal feces. 
Um, we are going to take great art movements and set, or artworks and set them ablaze as our own artistic expression. We are going to be iconoclastic, deconstructive. We are going to let our art be garbage or let our art be, you know, deformed mice in the years to come. We are going to explicitly express our disgust for the way that art has been used and the way that art has expressed political agendas and political aims in the past. That's at least part of what's going on here. But as much as Dada is trying to express this sort of apolitical agenda and as much as it is trying to sort of stay away from the manipulation, the use as propaganda, all of these things that, you know, Dada is very explicitly against, very explicitly trying to avoid, it can't help but fall into a kind of bigger dichotomy, a kind of bigger interaction that is sort of subsuming art in the 20th century even more than these individual art movements tend to express or, or emphasize. Namely, as much as you know, as much as we are talking about these art movements in the context of Gassat's essay, where he sees this as, you know, like an elite-sponsored, sometimes series of movements that are very dehumanized and therefore do not appeal to a whole bunch of people who are looking for an emotional or, you know, fairly basic intellectual reaction, who take art at face value rather than, as he puts it, like, seeing the pain itself rather than the, you know, objects depicted beyond it. Um, as much as he sees that it's on this sort of, like, postmodern versus realism spectrum, um, or this stylism, realism spectrum, as we might call it. Um, we need to recognize that this is part of several bigger movements and several bigger organizations that are going on here. Um, art has changed here in the 20th century in some fairly dramatic ways. And again, on the one hand, we've got the propaganda matter. The fact that art has been contracted and has increasingly been used to fund or get support or drum up power for various people running various nations, especially in funding and supporting their wars, which are increasingly viewed as frivolous by artists and by the people who, you know, are in fact disgusted by this moral abuse of art, especially. Um... And we also need to recognize that this kind of stands in contradistinction to the social realism that is increasingly coming in from the East, um, that still defines Russian art and Eastern European art, as well as Eastern European literature, um, and that is increasingly being seen as sort of like the art in support of communism, which, again, many of these artists here in Western Europe are rejecting and reacting against, using art as a me mechanism to say, well, yeah, if you're going to be using art to drum up sympathy, support, for your social agenda, which is itself kind of suspicious and self-serving, it's going to be really hard for us to create an art that is equally sympathetic but not serving that particular purpose. Like, yes, we should be serving the plight of the under of the um, oppressed, absolutely, no question. But that doesn't mean we should all become communists, especially when communism for you means basically totalitarian government. Uh, you know tacitly or or rather not tacitly um explicitly and superficially in support of a popular government like we are supposedly the rule by the people when in fact it is whatever lenin or stalin says it is um 
In reaction to this, though, the, in contradistinction to this sort of high art being used to serve these political agendas, either you know in Western propaganda or Eastern communist support, we are seeing the use of mass media as a tool for artistic production in more populist ways. Namely, we're also seeing the commercialization of art at the same time. Like, it's early in this process, and Gasset is definitely not seeing the, the real, you know, hallmarks of it at this point. It's still too early for it to be widely disseminated. But especially from America, we're going to see the likes of really commercialized art. Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and, you know, the Looney Tunes and Superman and all of these characters, all of these artistic properties that are intentionally kind of low art, if we can put it that way. We haven't talked a lot about this distinction yet because Tolstoy is apparently totally oblivious to this going on in what is art. But in the 19th century, I tend to think this is the moment when this is like at its most obvious and at its most important and apparent. You know, this is the age of the Strand publishing The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes or the Scarlet Pimpernel and the vast series that uh, Baroness Orsi was publishing to sort of celebrate these these adventures. This is the age of Robert, Steven, Robert Louis Stevenson writing Treasure Island and Kidnapped and sort of these adventure stories that would go on to spawn dozens of serials and, you know, things of that nature. We are increasingly seeing, with the advent of radio and now with the beginning of cinema and eventually with television, more consumable art very much directed at a kind of lowest common denominator populism standing in opposition to this high art that Gasset is talking about here. And this is how we usually frame that distinction to this day, in terms of low art versus high art in terms of commercial art versus a sort of elitist or, you know, art-for-art's-sake kind of art. Um, and on the one hand, we have to recognize that many of these art movements stand in very con serious distinction to these commercial art movements as well. Dada isn't political. Dada is also not commercial. It is not palatable to the people who are just there for, you know, the quick high or the quick hit of, you know, something funny or something silly or something pleasant or something just emotionally satisfying. Whether it is, you know, the high melodrama of something like Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island or alternatively, you know, the high melodrama of various radio serials like Superman or The Lone Ranger or any number of, you know equally commercialized, equally sort of heroic, equally emotionally appealing sort of low art produced regularly for popular consumption. Dada is against all of those things. Um, Dada does not want to be used for commercial purposes any more than it wants to be used for political purposes. Um, and the same is probably true with many of the other art movements going on to this day. Now, I kind of intentionally avoided talking about surrealism for that reason, because Dali is especially is like famously commercialized and was very much in favor of widespread commercialization of his work. Like he is the sellout of all sellouts when it comes to contemporary art movements. Um, which honestly, like, he kind of shares with Magritte and many of the other surrealists. Like the surrealists were just they were weird dudes. They didn't have terribly, like, political or, you know, high-minded moral agendas here. They just thought, you know, we should be using art to tap into the subconscious, which 
is totally something that can go along with making lots of money. So why don't we do that too? Um, let's just have a weird time and write some weird poetry and write and create some weird art and take some weird pictures and call it a day. Like who cares whether or not we make money hand over fist doing this? And as a result, why not make money hand over fist while doing this? Dada, however, and abstraction to some degree do not do this. Most of the abstractionists, so far as I can tell, like there might be exceptions. Pollock almost certainly got super commercialized, but again, there's extra stuff going on there. Um, but nonetheless, like the what I'm trying to stress here, what I'm trying to explain before I you know get totally lost in the weeds, is that we have this dynamic between, on the one hand, this super political social realism that is coming out of the East. We have the deliberately apolitical abstraction and Dada on the, on the other hand, and we have this new commercialized art coming through these various mass media forms, largely from the Western European world, but also especially the United States, where all of these you know advances and changes are really really starting to like pick up speed, and where capitalism is running absolutely rampant. All these three forces are kind of in opposition to one another, are pushing and pulling against one another. For the communists, the abstract and Dadaist movements are all elitist bourgeois nonsense that oppose the right of the worker and the populist agenda. And commercialism, on the other hand, is the tool of fat cat imperialists and the bourgeoisie, capitalism expressing itself and thus keeping people in line. It's effectively the religion of the day, the new opiate of the masses. For those high-minded artists of Dada and of uh, abstraction, they see communist as being, or communist artworks like social realism as being an un, like unavoidably political. Yes, they in many cases sympathize with the communication that like people should not be oppressed. But if the tool, if this is being used as a tool for just greater oppression, then that is definitely not what they're supposed to be doing here. Their art is meant to be apolitical and meant to fight against regimes like these communist regimes using these social realists. But against the commercialists, art should be high, motivated by high-minded ideals. It should be itself interested in its own artistic production and creation. It is not meant to be consumed by low people who just want, you know, pleasure or an immediate emotional reaction. It is supposed to be intellectual. It is supposed to express truths about the art itself, even if it is not expressing truths about the human condition for fear of being turned into some sort of political axe to grind. And on the other hand, we have the commercial artists who are just out to make money. Like, that's really all it comes down to. They just want money. Um, like, as much as there are dimensions to, co to commercial art that we should definitely explore and even celebrate, as much as, you know, the creators of Mickey Mouse do have some family-minded ideals in, in place that aren't just, I'm going to make all of the money all of the time, as much as Superman was created as a sort of, like, high-minded ideal leading people to behave better as this, you know, paragon of human virtue and human value tends to express to us, at the end of the day, the people who are promulgating and disseminating this stuff care much less about those ideals than they do about just making the money. Which is where this gets ugly. So this is all fun and games in the 1920s and 30s and even in the 1940s as once again many of these art forms are being used to fund greater propaganda efforts in the wake of you know the Nazi regime in World War II. 
um, commercial art especially is going to get very excited about the possibility of being used for propagandistic purposes. Superman is going to start punching Nazis. Donald Duck and the Looney Tunes are going to start, you know, making bombs against the Japanese and against the Germans. You know, commercial art is very easily going to be turned to propagandistic purposes, especially when, you know, the Uncle Sam is willing to give a buck to Disney or to Warner Brothers or to whoever else is making the art in order to foot their propagandistic purposes. No harm in making money from Uncle Sam just as much as you can make money from the populace. And social realism, shocker, is going to be absolutely used to fund both socialist and Nazi regimes. Um, like, as Stalin is coming to power, social realism is his weapon of choice in sort of galvanizing his public in order to take on the war effort that he is, you know, so seriously engaged in. All of these nations are going to use their various art forms to create propaganda. And to some degree, the likes of the Dadaists, the Surrealists, and the Abstractionists are going to be left behind in this process. Um, they are not easily turned into propaganda posters. But Dada itself is going to very much die out when World War II starts up because all that money that used to be going into Dada's art efforts is now being redirected towards the war effort because, you know, whether or not you hate propaganda, you should probably hate Nazis more at the end of the day. Um, as much as, you know, the apolitical stance that the Dadaists were trying to emphasize is legitimate and praiseworthy, when you are being faced with an existential threat the size of the Nazis, or alternatively, the political agenda of literally exterminating millions of people, being apolitical, trying to sit on the fence when it comes to the Holocaust, is kind of a shitty place to sit. Um, if you are saying, but art should be above politics when politics is systematic extermination of a particular group of people, you're wrong on that one. Art is, as we said at the outset here, moral. And when a moral atrocity on the level of the Nazis is being perpetrated, art should be propagandistic. Art should be fighting against that. Um, so Dada very much dries up in the wake of this. But abstraction continues to go strong as its own sort of entity. Um, not as propaganda, because it's really hard to turn Kandinsky's random shapes or Clay's, you know, play of line and balance into propaganda. But nonetheless, you will see a lot of propaganda posters using especially, you know, art movements of the time inspired by, like, Art Deco or, you know, Bauhaus architecture. That will definitely be there. What I want to stress, though, especially going forward after World War II, is that as much as the abstractionists and this high-minded dehumanization of art is intentionally apolitical, it becomes political. In the 1950s and into the 1960s, there is a particularly dedicated arm of the CIA, of all things, devoted towards popularizing these otherwise apolitical art movements. Abstraction especially gets the attention of these CIA agents and operatives, and increasingly the CIA is funding art exhibitions that sort of celebrate and 
emphasize Western artistic achievements and especially capitalism's artistic achievements, whether it's Louis Armstrong being funded for a worldwide tour by the CIA, or whether it is Jackson Pollock getting his exhibitions in Europe funded by the CIA, or whether it is, you know, the Paris Review getting its start largely because of ex-CIA operatives, but how ex they are we really have questions, and then getting other li similar literary magazines featuring work that is deliberately apolitical, that's all CIA op worked in the background. Heck, even the Iowa Writers' Conference was largely founded by CIA efforts, and that incredibly important axiom of contemporary creative writing schools, show don't tell, was largely engineered by CIA foundations and cultural influences to sort of emphasize, hey, you know, if the communists are going to deliberately use social realism and realistic art in the form of realistic literature especially to support the communist agenda and talk about, you know, the plight of the underclass, maybe it would be best if we just have radically apolitical art and radically apolitical literature, the likes of Raymond Carver or the likes of William Styron, as sort of a showcase of what art is supposed to be and to sort of intentionally fight communist agendas. Show don't tell, not in, in addition to being, you know, this supposedly good artistic advice across the board, is actually a pretty deliberate expression that you're supposed to leave your politics and leave your ideologies aside when you engage in artwork. To be political in art is a taboo now. Which means that the CIA and all of these artists who were very much apolitical in their own right have turned into a political arm in their own right. See, as much as I just said a little while ago that in the 1940s when there is such a hugely awful thing going on as the Holocaust, for art to insist that it should be apolitical is itself immoral, what the CIA is effectively suggesting here is that that same apoliticalness can be used as a political playing piece. The anti-propaganda art Hell, the anti-propaganda attitude can actually be turned to propagandistic purposes. In an America or an England or a Western Europe where the average person is inoculated against propaganda, is being taught that propaganda is the tool of a weak and pathetic regime, where they look at propaganda and say, I do not react positively to that anymore because I am too smart for this nonsense, the only reaction that the CIA or that other sort of pro-American organizations and agencies could adopt is we should all be like this. We should all be inoculated against propaganda. We should all consider ourselves too good, too big, too smart for propaganda. And then that will catch on over in Soviet nations, thus preventing them from being able to effectively use it in the future. And this worked! Like, as much as the CIA is famous for botching various, you know, coups or, like, rigged elections or whatever, and as much as some of the same people in the CIA are coming from Iran and the most big, like, election to work on something like the Paris Review or Encounter or to sort of stand behind the scenes in the Congress of Cultural Freedom, it works. Like, the botched elections all get, you know, press and blown out of proportion, and any time the CIA assassinates someone, it becomes this big shadowy deal. 
when they fund art, this actually takes off. Europe is effectively inoculated against propaganda going on, insofar as propaganda is like obvious attempts to curry favor for a political for a particular political organization. The danger then becomes: is anti-propaganda itself propaganda? Are we being trained to think that propaganda is bad specifically because we are being propagandized into thinking that? And propagandized to think that propaganda looks and seems a certain way when in fact every short story you pick up that is just about, you know, suburban homes and the discontents between families is in fact kind of anti-propaganda propaganda training you to think that anything that is more explicitly ideological is bad for you. If being political is bad, then that defangs politicians. It prevents them from being powerful, which allows other organizations and other agencies, especially corporate organizations, to thrive and to prosper. At the end of the day, an art that is anti-commercial just as it is anti-political is at the end of the day serving the purposes of commerce. Because nobody is crying foul about advertising, even though advertising is essentially just propaganda but for stuff or for corporations, because we assume and expect that from them. We accept it blithely. Somehow that distinction between advertising and propaganda is so carefully laid here by these various anti-political, anti-propagandistic artworks that we are now disinclined to trust or to accept the you know, advertisements for our government at the same time as we accept advertisements for hamburgers or for movies or whatever the case may be. It is essentially a propaganda that supports capitalism, a propaganda that confirms capitalism over communism, and is largely, at least partially, responsible for the cultural conquest of the capitalistic West over the communist East. It's kind of a shame that all of these anti-political, you know, abstract artists end up being used for these propagandistic purposes, on the other hand, many of them would have agreed with this. Many of them were okay with this. Many of them said as much when they were working with the CIA or accepting CIA funds. This was okay to them. Remember, we were in a war not so long ago. And if anything, sitting here in the 21st century saying to myself, wow, propaganda is bad and we should not let our propaganda mix with our art is kind of the successful product of all of that propagandizing once upon a time. Now, it's complicated, and it does kind of backfire on the CIA. You know, all of that anti-political propaganda tends to, you know, look very different when it's suddenly the beats running around in the 1960s and 70s talking about how we should just give peace a chance and maybe the Vietnam War is nonsense. Oops. Um, but nonetheless, it remains this period of strange propagandizing in the form of anti-propaganda. It is very much this moment where the highest levels of artistic appreciation were very much being contracted to political purposes despite very explicit anti-political aims and agendas. It is when the art that is the most abstract and the most sort of removed from personal human and political concerns has been contracted to serve the most political concerns. And I realize this is a super complicated thing to sort of wrap our brains around. 
Um, on the one hand, the history and the evidence is just plainly there. Yes, the CIA was the, was behind the Congress of Cultural Freedom, which was itself behind the likes of the Perry Review, or the sort of promotion of jazz music in Europe, or the promotion of Jackson Pollock paintings abroad. Um, that's clear, that's not subject to any question. On the other hand, for us to see that anti-propaganda serves a propagandistic purpose, the idea that, you know, a propaganda that inoculates us against propaganda is itself used to political ends, that's more complicated. Um, and that's a difficult thing to sort of see the light behind. But the fact of the matter is, that's the way that this works in this case. We are all prevented from accepting propaganda largely so we wouldn't accept the obvious propaganda coming out of Soviet nations. When we look at, you know, the, the movies that Soviet producers created celebrating Stalin, we instinctively reject them. We are instinctively find them repulsive. We see obvious celebrations of, you know, the Soviet Union as being the champion of the people as being sentimental or romanticized or, you know, as Gasset would say, you know, like, melodramatic. We see that as low. We say that as base, as grotesque in some ways. And this was the point. This was what we were supposed to think. This is what they wanted us to think. This is what we were trained to think. And in all halls of power, whether in the Ivy League or the University of Iowa, whether in creative writing conferences or artistic exhibitions, they were to some degree successful. This took. We today tend to think propaganda is gross, and we must therefore reject all of that very easy propagandizing that communists and socialists and Soviets tend to promote. Are we immune to propaganda? Absolutely not. It's just a different kind. It can't look the way that we understand propaganda to look. It's got to look like advertising, or it's got to look like Tucker Carlson, or it's got to look like Rush Limbaugh, or it's got to look like, in some respect, the New York Times editorials. It's got to look like NPR. It's got to look like information. And not big, splashy, colorful posters talking about the superiority of capitalism over communism. In some way, it's got to look like the MCU, or it's got to look like the various Hollywood blockbusters that come out. Then we accept it. Now, this is not, you know, me saying, like, oh no, we're subjected to propaganda and all of us are sheep. Like, that's not the goal of this. On the one hand, the goal is to talk about the, you know, fact that this was an actual thing and we should be better informed about it in order to better prepare ourselves in case somebody is trying to mess with our heads. On the other hand, what I want to look at is the ethical dimension here, because it is complicated. Yes, we generally think that art used for propaganda is unequivocally bad, but there have been moments where that isn't necessarily the case, where, yeah, fighting Hitler was a good thing, and therefore it would have been bad to say that it wasn't, whether it's bad to say that it wasn't in the form of people who showed no opinion, like the Dadaists or the Abstractionists would have, or bad because we just kind of cozied up to it, the way that Heidegger did, just sort of accepting it and moving on. You know, 
shortly after World War II, one of the major things that the CIA was in fact doing was trying to assess how many of the you know, Nazi artists and Nazi propagandizers were in fact n Nazi sympathizers, were ideologically aligned with the Nazi party and therefore could not be allowed to work anymore and should be persecuted and prosecuted to the fullest extent of international law, versus the people who were in fact doing art but just trying to keep their heads down and prevent themselves from being co-opted like perhaps Paul Clay was. Um, not that Paul Clay survived all that long after. This became a major issue. Questioning each other's loyalties, questioning the artistic integrity of these artists, questioning how devoted these artists were to the, you know, artistic or political agendas that they were trying to promote, that became a big deal. And on the one hand, you've got to say, you know, at least they were sincere in Tolstoy's line of thinking. Like, a Nazi artist is at least truthful, even if he is reprehensible for promoting a terrible ideology. On the other hand, we should definitely be asking ourselves the question, one, can we have a art, a literature immune to propaganda, an art or literature that cannot serve propagandistic purposes, or alternatively, an art or literature that doesn't think it is serving propagandistic purposes, even if it can ultimately be turned to those propagandistic purposes. And if that's part of this dimension of ethical discussion, this, okay, so should we be pushing back against propaganda question, the next logical question would be, so what are we expecting from the artist? What do we want them to create? What is the artist's relationship to their nation, to their ideology, to their convictions? Um, how does an artist relate to the world, the culture, the politics of their day if they don't want to be propaganda? Can they really fence it? Can they really sit in the middle when this is the matter of serious, you know, deliberation and serious moral question? Can you really be expected to sit on the fence when people are suffering and dying unjustly? Isn't that what art is supposed to correct? Like, can you really claim, you know, sorry, Dr. Martin Luther King, as much as you are, you know, a great supporter and have produced great speeches, you are at the end of the day political and therefore wrong. Can we really in good conscience say that when Dr. King was fighting against real injustice? What is the function of art then? If, in fact, as Gasset is saying, there is room for people who have dehumanized art, for people who have regarded art as being either above or disregarded by or immune to political intervention, if Gasset is saying that that aspiration is at least worth listening to, shouldn't we also be considering that as one of our axes? maybe there should be a moral dimension to an art that is deliberately saying nothing versus an art that is deliberately saying something about the world, saying something about the political situation, taking a side in a sense. Should art fence it is really the question we're asking in many of these sort of art movements and many of the historical developments surrounding them. Arguably, art can't fence it. Even if it tries, it will be used in some sense. There will be some kind of moral outcome. An art that refuses to in interact with the politics of the day can be taken by the CIA to support an anti-communist agenda. It will, at the end of the day, say something whether it intends to or not.
So then what is the responsibility of art to say? Is it responsible only to itself? Or is it responsible to the higher political and issues of justice and morality that we are dealing with on a regular basis? Can an art that tries to say nothing be moral? Or is it inherently immoral for refusing to take a side in issues that desperately need to be resolved? Must art be political? And is an aspirational apoliticalness inherently immoral, essentially? Because this is something that we are dealing with today. This is something that we're dealing with all the time today. Like, every time some new Far Cry game comes out, or every time, you know, Ubisoft releases an Assassin's Creed game, we end up having a discussion like this. Every new Call of Duty brings up this discussion. You know, video games seem the pretty obvious example here, although, you know, maybe we should be questioning more the fact that, like, these days, probably one of the most popular characters and one of the most popular franchises in the world is a guy by the name of Captain America. Um, we should definitely be asking these questions because so many of these organizations and corporations are deliberately trying to stay away from politics. Like, we recently saw Disney Plus's Captain America and the Winter Soldier kind of bringing up the subject of, oh yeah, America is actually super racist and has actually had a really complicated relationship to the black people who have fought for it in the past. Maybe that's something we should talk about, and yet not really coming down on one side or the other and refusing to actually take a stance condemning American history or American politicians or historical American politicians who su supported this sort of nonsense and just sort of saying, hey, we should probably do better. Hooray! Can we condemn them? Should we condemn them? Aren't they ripe for condemnation for trying to stay out of a discussion that desperately has a right and wrong side to it? That clearly has a injustice at its heart? Shouldn't we say when Far Cry 5 comes out and says nothing about, all, about radical right-wing extremism that it is being cowardly? That it is essentially tacitly supporting this stuff essentially tacitly supporting a kind of hyper-consumer, hyper-capitalist agenda where people just make money hand over fist simply because it doesn't condemn it. Shouldn't we hold art to these moral standards even when they are deliberately avoiding these moral questions? Shouldn't we be condemning them all the more because they avoid these moral questions? We are not immune to propaganda is a refrain all over the place. But what we need to recognize is that because we are not immune to propaganda, everything is propaganda. Everything has a moral dimension. And if it's claiming to not have one, what it is tacitly supporting is the status quo. No change. It is saying our world is fine. Even though most of us are very willing to admit that it very much isn't. And desperately needs change and being repaired. So I want that to be the thing that we dwell on today. On the one hand, I do like what Gasset is saying, and I do want to set the stage for this sort of primary versus secondary art discussion that we're going to have. Um, but on the other hand, I want us to consider, is an art that is supposedly apolitical in fact cowardly, in fact avoiding major important moral issues that we need to be discussing for the purposes of either profit or 
upholding the status quo or supporting a capitalist entity against a communist entity deliberately trying to point out the injustices in our own system. Alright, hopefully that was a little bit more concrete, a little bit more navigable than half of the stuff that I've been talking about lately. Um, at any rate, I do want us to sort of think about this, recognize this as another dimension of the morality of art and its interaction with these issues that we are wrestling with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, for next time, though, we are going to be continuing our examination of the art that is apolitical um, with Jacques Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist. Uh, Maritain is a Christian existentialist, so once again we're going to be working in hardcore Christian territory. Um, shocker, a series on the ethics of art is going to be running into religion quite a lot, um, and religious thinkers quite a lot in our discussions. Um, at any rate, definitely read Jacques Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist, and I am going to recommend that we keep our supplementary readings a little limited on this one, in part because... Maritain doesn't refer specifically to various artworks terribly often. He's he's more broad-minded and abstract, which honestly makes him kind of a pain to read, but hopefully we'll be able to make something out of it. Um, the two works that I do recommend, though, um, even though I haven't personally recommend or read them because they are in the category of stuff that I was talking about at the beginning of this uh, lecture, you know, the stuff I just haven't had the time to read, um, the two artists that he does bring up pretty frequently are Andre Gide and Moriac. So I'm going to recommend that we read Gide's The Immoralists and Moriac's Viper's Knot. Um, and I will see if I can possibly start them before next week, but I make no promises. Um, at any rate, hopefully if you do read them, you will have a much better context for our discussion than even I will when I'm making it. Um, so at any rate, next week, Maritain's uh, The Responsibility of the Artist. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the Internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year, um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.